This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to season one of The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Today, we had a great conversation with Dr. Jed Constance. Dan, this is a guy I think we were quite lucky to get. I mean, Jed Constance is a healthcare finance and delivery strategic consultant. He has a payer background. He's advised employers on measures to develop regional and community-based physician accountability and commitment through enhanced benefit and costs. He's an advocate of the advanced primary care movement, the foremost expert in how to finance primary care to create the transformation that we seek in our industry. He's spent his career on the payer side, started off working with Blue Cross Blue Shield in central New York. He's led hospital organizations, worked with home health, physician organizations, IPAs. He has about 30 plus years in healthcare. It really seems like now he's found his calling and he's one of the, our go-to guys, I think, in the country. If, we, if you really needed to have a conversation with someone about how to fix primary care and align incentives, I think Jed would be your guy. Completely agree, Eric. Jed is the guy when it comes to primary care, you know, with his involvement with the patient-centered medical home movement and the primary care innovators network that he mentions in our conversation. It's really enlightening to hear his thoughtfulness and his ideas around how the industry should invest in primary care, how primary care physicians need to change or recognize their mentalities and their thoughts around value, how they can position themselves. That employer piece is such a big deal when you're thinking about what's happened with the market around COVID and as they look to renew contracts in the coming year. So a fantastic conversation. I'm really excited to be able to share. Well, without further ado, let's kick it over to Dr. Jed Constance. Dr. Jed Constance, welcome to Race to Value. Thank you, Eric. Jed, we're living in challenging times, my friend. Oh, absolutely. We've never seen anything like this before. And let's hope we never see it again, but we're going to learn <laughs> a lot from this uh, experience for sure. I think so. And I think our listeners are going to learn a lot from you today about just how to put everything in perspective. And we're really sensing that primary care is 
especially compromised right now in this ongoing pandemic crisis. PCPs seem really vulnerable, Jed, to all the deleterious economic effects of the pandemic. And especially since, I mean, let's be honest, most primary care still derives most of its revenue from fee-for-service, which requires in-person visits. And those have plummeted since March with all this widespread stay-at-home stuff and fears about office-based transmission of coronavirus. And as I think about this, Jed, I'm thinking the pain is really astute for PCPs that aren't financially backed by health systems or private equity or other entities. We have about half of physicians that still own their practices and those independents were already operating on razor thin margins after years of reimbursement cuts, unfavorable payment structures, expensive EMR implementations and so forth. And then you add a pandemic to the mix. It just seems like it's a recipe for disaster. So Jed, I wanted to ask you and think about this, I guess, as we enter into our conversation today, There was a recent health affairs article written by researchers from Harvard Medical School, and it said primary care practices are slated to lose $15 billion, billion with a B, in the United States because of the coronavirus disease. In a recent study that was conducted by the Primary Care Collaborative, a third of primary care physicians feel like they're not ready to face the next six months. You know, they're lacking enough cash on hand to stay open. The pandemic is surging. They, they really don't know what to do. So as we think about COVID-19 and its impact on primary care, I thought a good place to start for us today, Jed, would be the topic of financial impact. How does that sound? Absolutely. I mean, the simple truth is primary care and healthcare in particular, it's a service industry. And as we've seen with retail and the restaurant industry, where you take away the customer, you take away the revenue. And for those of us who've been advocating for nearly 10 years for payment reform for primary care, this experience has illustrated and underscored the point we've been trying to make is that primary care needs to be given every opportunity to establish trusting relationships with people, depending upon your perspective, beneficiaries for publicly funded programs and covered individuals in the private sector. The lack of a payment methodology for primary care, a compensation strategy for primary care that supports these relationships has given us what we're facing right now. Sources of primary care, as you point out, predominantly independent primary care, who have lost all revenue. Revenue has gone from what it was to nothing. And the change in the relationship between primary care and the patients they care for hasn't really manifested to support this lack of revenue for primary care. They still carry the same level of expectation that they are going to be available for the patient who needs them more so now than ever as patients try to reconcile what does the coronavirus mean for them individually and the communities that surround them, their families, their extended families and the like. So this experience has really helped us develop the hard way, frankly, a deeper understanding of why primary care historically should have been purchased differently than the rest of healthcare in order to maintain these trusting relationships and really give primary care the opportunity to live up to the expectations 
of true patient-centered care, population health, and the like, which again is absolutely critical to affordable, high-quality healthcare in this country. I couldn't agree with you more, Jed. And as we're trying to figure that out, how to pay for patient-centered primary care, I think about this other arms race going on in the industry, groups that are trying to acquire physicians. I mean, it seems like provider consolidation and capital investment in primary care is at an all-time high. And it was that way even before the COVID pandemic. The amount of capital that is being poured into the health sector and the velocity to which it has been deployed. It's been pretty phenomenal over the last few years. I mean, just on the PE side, we saw about 60 billion in deals in 2019, and that amount should continue to rise since multiples on invested capital on healthcare PE investments made during recessions meaningfully outperform those in other industries. And I'm seeing in recent weeks, Jed, Elliot Fisher, he's been pretty outspoken about provider consolidation. He just published a study in health affairs comparing PCPs to IDNs, basically showing that independent primary care physicians have better quality and cost outcomes. And I think we've seen other research in the last few years on that, but he's using his research to advocate for Congress to bail out small independent primary care practices for the role they play and will play in the country's transition to value-based care. And Daniel and I even talked about this on our first podcast episode with Edwin Estevez, the CEO of RGV ACO, when he talked about how independent physicians are really key to physician-led value-based care. So all that said, Jed, I really wanted to ask you, like, what does all this capital investment and providers mean for the future of primary care? Should we worry about the corporatization of primary care? And if I'm an independent financially distressed PCP just trying to survive, what should I be thinking about in terms of financial viability? Should I be looking to sell out to a PE firm or payer back subsidiary or a health system? Or should I ride it out thinking that the vested interest in health value like Congress or payers, or are they looking to preserve my autonomy as a physician entrepreneur? It certainly seems that primary care physicians and practices have a window of opportunity right now to reset the conversation around investment in, in payment of primary care. And I really want to hear what your thoughts are on this, Jed. Well, they, they really do have a window of opportunity, but I think first and foremost, which happens to be the first element or characteristic of a truly advanced primary care model is who is the individual doctor who is caring for a cohort of patients. And so as long as that primary care physician maintains a level of agency around how they care for their patients, how they choose to meet the needs of their patients, the underlying financial arrangements really and I don't mean to insult anybody's intelligence, but they, it really doesn't matter as much as who is the actual doctor who is caring for a cohort of patients. So physicians should not be afraid to innovate around what sort of financial underpinnings they have in order to meet the needs of their patients. What they should be instead focused on are the terms and conditions of any business agreement they strike to the extent that it enables them, allows them to continue to maintain a level of accountability around the care and treatment of their patients. And so they need to tread carefully as they enter into new financial arrangements, which are frankly going to become necessary, whether you call them short-term loans or long-term arrangements. The simple truth is 
it comes down to the individual doctor and his or her ability to take ownership of the care and treatment of the patient cohort that they accept responsibility for. So right now, all financial arrangements are fair game in terms of addressing this current economic crisis. But as long as the physician is confident in his or her ability to be held accountable for the care and treatment of their patient, they should be able to work through these arrangements. And that is part of the work that folks in my situation try to offer, is how best to approach any financial terms and conditions. Gone are the days of the so-called participation agreement, where physicians accept less than retail for services in order to be part of some kind of preferred provider panel. Those are worthless, and those don't speak to value. What speaks to value is that ability of the physician, again, I said a minute ago, first criteria, first characteristic of a truly advanced model of primary care finance and delivery is that physician's ability to accept ownership, accountability for what happens to and for their cohort of patients. Jed, thanks for these comments. You're really highlighting something that I think is extremely important, and that's for physicians to understand that they do have the power. They're the the caregivers of a population that they've chosen to be accountable for and that they can leverage that. So as we think about the different types of private equity and other arrangements that we're seeing as the market is sort of shifting towards consolidation and we're we're pushing back against this consolidation idea a little bit, but you see other consolidation happening with CVS and Aetna with their health hubs, with Village MD just announcing their deal with Walgreens to put a lot of primary care physician offices in Walgreens and with Walmart and their efforts. And then you've got a lot of uh, other high-touch private equity-backed groups like Oak Street and Iora Health and One Medical. All of these different groups are kind of pushing towards this idea of consolidation And to your point, Jed, does a physician think about joining one of these arrangements or can physicians maintain their independence and still drive to value? Well, it depends on the definition of independence. And so what I'm really trying to speak to and what we've really done, spent some real quality time understanding is that definite independence in terms of clinical decision-making in order to meet the needs of that particular patient. And so if, if you look at some of the models that you've identified, some are truly corporate models where there is a corporate game plan and a set of expectations that are laid upon the physician. Others are more management service organization type entities that simply support the physician, but really give the physician the opportunity to practice as if he or she were an independent physician. So when you've seen one model, you've seen one model, as they, you know, the old saying goes. And so that's why I think it's important for physicians, as they think about their own futures, to consider how do they want to emerge from this situation? You know, do they want to, quote, sell out and simply stop thinking? Or do they want to partner with someone and look for a business model for themselves that truly allows them if you will, to practice the style of medicine that they want. And, and that's the beauty of this, is that the circumstance here is so dramatic that the innovation that's occurring is equally dramatic. 
and frankly, kind of exciting for those who are not fearful of the future. And the Village MD relationship with Walgreens is a perfect example because I know the folks at Village MD and they practice a style of medicine that is truly independent, even though it is a kind of a corporate model. So Jed, you, I think you could also speak to this with your payer background. You've identified the, the corporate model, the more independent managed service organization model. Feels like there's some pressure, some competition in the market to see maybe which one of these models might work and, and where the future might take us. But there's also a model that we're seeing that Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina is stepping up in this time of COVID and, and they're paying their physicians up front. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that and tell us where that fits in. Well, it, it absolutely fits in. A comprehensive payment for primary care has been something that my colleagues and I through the Primary Care Innovators Network have been working on for some time now. And the idea being that you need to identify the future value of primary care on a per patient per month basis in a non-risk bearing business model and then provide that cash flow to primary care. Now for carriers, it may mean that what they have been offering as an in-kind service to primary care, they need to stop doing that and instead turn that money over to primary care. So I think in terms of the future value of primary care in the context of four buckets of service, obviously preventive care, But I've also had the opportunity to work with both self-funded employers and sources of primary care in the careful calculation of a clinically valid wellness program organized and delivered by primary care, a clinically valid disease management program organized and delivered by primary care, and a clinically valid care management care coordination program organized and delivered by primary care. Historically, Daniel, these are services that have been either provided by a health plan, a carrier, or by a freestanding vendor. And in this new conversation we're having, it's an opportunity to calculate the future value of primary care in a manner that allows purchasers to spend the same or less money more intelligently. Now, for carriers, that are not afraid of that scenario, I think they'll do well. For other carriers whose history seems to reflect payments uh, equal to what I lovingly refer to as chump change, they're gonna have a harder time making this transition from uh, how primary care has been supported, and I put that in air quotes, in the past versus how primary care needs to be invested in in the future. But it's all about payment in advance of care. It's all about determining what sort of cash flow arrangement makes the most sense for primary care for each covered individual who opts into an enhanced primary care program or benefit plan design. And it's not the old HMO. That's really helpful, Jed. I know that you write about this on LinkedIn and I've read the articles you've written and you talk about how primary care should be purchased differently. And I think you've described that really well describing that a primary care is really an investment. We really need leaders like you, Jed, to continue speaking up on behalf of primary care. It's obviously not a good time for primary care right now in that, you know, Eric mentioned we're on target to lose some project upwards of 15 billion this year because of COVID, Mm -hmm. which equates to a loss of 70,000 for every primary care physician in the country. 
considering when they're kind of on the bottom of the earnings ladder as a physician specialty, earning on average around two hundred thirty thousand per year, that's a that's a significant amount to lose. Oh, it is, and and again, it it really is an opportunity for folks to take a step back and say, what do I want from primary care, mm-hmm. as opposed to what have I been spending on primary care. I cut my teeth, so to speak, on. I grew up in a primary care in a physician office where I, I was a receptionist and, and I eventually came back as an office manager there. I know the family who runs this practice very well. These people are worried about themselves, their, their family members, their staff. They're worried about making payroll. Maybe, as you've said, there's a silver lining in that it's an opportunity to think about and to promote a message of paying for it differently. We've seen a lot of language and and communication around the importance of capitated contracts where providers do assume risk. You've mentioned PMPM without assuming risk, but the idea of the capitated contract, though, being consistent where the provider gets paid even if utilization dries up. So it gives them a, a hedge sort of that they can control the risk if there's risk involved. In the pandemic situation, we saw volumes go down and providers who had that capitation have been better off. So has your take on the value-based compensation landscape for primary care changed with the advent of the pandemic? And particularly, you've talked about the advanced primary care model that you've been working on that allows primary care physicians to control their aggregate spending. I'd like you to talk a little bit more about and help our listeners understand this model, the primary care project that you've been leading, and you've mentioned the PCIN, the Primary Care Innovators Network. So maybe you can talk a little bit more about these and tie that into what you've mentioned already in the background that I've given about capitation. Sure. Well, first of all, while primary care volumes may have gone down, patient needs have not changed. If anything, a patient need has increased. And so it really does depend upon how you define services and service delivery and innovation around meeting the needs of patients. And so this is what we've learned, frankly, the hard way, is that face-to-face encounters are not as important as we once thought. And really, face-to-face encounters were where they were, and just by way of context, most primary care physicians, in order to live successfully in a fee-for-service world, had 15-minute appointments double booked. So do the math. You had seven and a half minutes with each patient in order to make the economics work. The doctors didn't stop thinking about the patients outside the seven and a half minutes, but what they did try to do was work to meet the needs of the patients when the patient wasn't physically present. Now, take away the fee-for-service revenue it doesn't mean the doctor is, is going to stop thinking about the needs of the patient. The doctor has to find new ways in order to do that. So the innovation around telemedicine driven by primary care as opposed to an external source to primary care is a great example of how primary care was able to make a, a pivot. And while there have been some short-term accommodations of telehealth versus uh, face-to-face encounters, It's a clear illustration that telehealth, for example, is of greater value when owned and operated by the primary care physician with whom you have a trusting relationship. And we've seen unbelievable uptake 
in terms of access to telehealth and the use of telehealth with some rather dramatic percentages. But all that being said, what we have tried to do through our Primary Care Innovators Network effort is first ask the question, if payment to primary care was based upon a comprehensive payment model, where the number of encounters was not key to revenue, and primary care could then innovate in order to align care with the needs of the patient, rather than simply focus on the provision of care that was payable by somebody, what sort of innovation would you see? What sort of change in the patient circumstance uh, would you realize as outcomes, or as I like to think of, deliverables? And so going back to the very basic conversation around the so-called triple aim, simple improvement in health status, controlled aggregate spending, and high levels of patient satisfaction, which frankly is, is a foundation for patient activation, uh, research that comes to us from the University of Oregon, Drs. Hibbard and her colleagues were able to demonstrate that a highly activated patient was inherently healthier and 10% less expensive to care for. Payment reform in primary care gives you that opportunity to imagine a different relationship between the primary care team and the patient. And what we you know, began to realize was it's great to have a primary care physician serving at times as the medical director for a subset of the patient population whose chronic care needs were minimal at best, but nevertheless would greatly benefit from a clinically valid care plan focused predominantly on health literacy. So it really is, we asked the question, if we paid primary care differently, what could we expect from primary care as deliverables? And that's been the most exciting part of our work. And what COVID has done for us, frankly, is reinforce that payment of primary care differently was frankly a good idea. And that the measures that matter are really, at the end of the day, triple aim oriented around the documented needs of an individual patient and a cohort of patients. Chad, I really appreciate your thinking on payment reform and how we should be financing primary care delivery. It seems like what you're suggesting is definitely in the best interest of patients and our country as a whole. I've also been thinking a great deal about how unstable the employer-sponsored health insurance marketplace is right now, and I know you have a lot of expertise in that, so I wanted to explore that a little bit with you today. You're right, Eric, because the relationship between employers and their covered individuals has truly changed. And again, it's by standard industrial classification, for sure, in terms of the service industry versus manufacturing versus you know professionals. And so you're spot on. And I'll be the first to admit that yours truly is now thinking differently as well around, because I always saw employers as having, for the most part, as having a natural enlightened self-interest in the well-being of their covered individuals in order to, you know, maximize their productivity. And that as such, employer-sponsored health benefits made a lot of sense because you had someone who, who wanted to invest in a benefit plan in order to, frankly, drive both retention and productivity certain industries accepted. 
And the mother of all case studies is uh, Rosen Hotels in Orlando, where Harris Rosen, as part of the hospitality industry, was boasting of a nearly 90% retention among that workforce, which is unheard of in the hospitality industry, where he was able to take the savings from his commitment to his covered individuals in the way he designed his primary care-oriented benefit plan and plow those back into his community in ways that government never could. So, you know, I have always been a fan of this, but what this current circumstance does illustrate, Eric, is that for certain segments of the business community, there's some sort of understandable, well-designed, so-called safety net uh, does seem appropriate now. I'm not and never will be a Medicare for All proponent, But I will and always will be a primary care for all proponent. And so whatever emerges from this in order to meet this gap among employers, there needs to be some sort of strategy in my mind that at a minimum allows folks to retain the relationship they have with whoever their primary care physician is while we work out the so-called catastrophic coverage arrangements that wraps around these primary care relationships. And that's why there are lessons to be learned from the direct primary care community where you have been able to identify truly the monthly value of primary care finance uh, and delivery. I think you're spot on there, Jed, and primary care first and foremost should be what we're thinking about in terms of preserving quality of care and creating even more innovation to improve outcomes in our country. And I just keep thinking, like, is this COVID pandemic really going to be the potential flashpoint for innovative change in benefit design? If you look at the employer space, I mean, even before COVID, it was very expensive. I've seen numbers, you know, like, $530 $530 billion spent just on poor health costing employers. And then when you add on what they actually spend in premium dollars and medical expense, it's $880 billion. And then you have hospitals that have been relying on commercial insurance to subsidize their losses on the public pay side. And, and then COVID happens. So I, I'm just wondering, Jed, is this a, a flashpoint that we're looking at for innovation with preservation of employer-sponsored benefits? Or, I mean, is there a potential death spiral in the commercial insurance <laughs> marketplace. Uh, you know, what, what, are we th- what, what are we seeing here? Like if I'm an employer, okay, and I'm thinking about my medical expense for next year, I mean, how do I even know where to begin? You know, if right. the COVID crisis is causing so much disruption in non-emergency care, and it seems like insurers and large employers can't even estimate what their spending is going to be for next year, and these large self-insured employers or they, you know, they have employees that are delaying treatment for elective stuff. And then, and the, but then you have the, the workers that have chronic conditions and they're not getting the primary care that they need. So what do you see happening in 2021 for employers right now? Well, for, for self-funded employers, this is a revelation, frankly, that the money they have not spent in 2020, they have a window of opportunity to spend that money more intelligently in 2021 and to really zero in on primary care as a different strategy, frankly. Instead of seeing primary care as just one of the categories of care in healthcare spending, to really begin to imagine primary care as the go-forward de facto purchasing agent 
for the rest of the healthcare spending for their covered individuals. You know, there's a meaningful segment of the employer community. I think nearly a thousand employers nationally have been relying on on-site near-site clinics. And what was originally intended to be cheaper care, particularly cheaper acute care, they're beginning to understand. And there are certain on-site near-site clinic companies that are leading the way in terms of this conversation and uh, are presenting themselves as true full-service sources of primary care. So it's giving the self-funded employer, frankly, a bit of a financial respite in terms of my per employee per year spend for health benefits has dropped measurably given this lack of encounters uh, during 2020 here. So let me take a hard look at this and see if I can't do something differently. For those smaller employers who are not in a position to self-fund, who must rely on carriers and fully insured programs, many of those are actually looking at, well, do I carve out primary care now in order to insulate myself from what appears to be coming down the road, which is this increase in premium for no apparent reason? And so the smaller employer is beginning to examine whether or not primary care needs to be part of a fully insured calculation or whether primary care in and of itself is a more predictable expense and as such can be purchased separate. And then there's that community of employers who have been so damaged by COVID-19 that they may just throw their hands up and say, I surrender, I can't do this anymore, I can't think about this anymore, let alone keep my doors open to do whatever it is I was doing. So uh, I think it's, it's gonna fall into three areas. Now, I've had the opportunity for several months now to be part of the animated conversation between the National Alliance of Healthcare Purchaser Coalitions, which represents the various employer coalitions, employer business groups on health and the like located across the country, and the American Academy of Family Physicians, where these folks every Friday have a conversation that is aimed at how do we do this differently based upon what we have witnessed? Maybe not necessarily learned, but based upon what we have witnessed. So I'm one of those who remains optimistic in a good way that the business community, once we get past this, will be leaders in terms of uh, driving change, frankly, because the same thing remains true. It's their money, it's their decision, it's their choice on how they want to approach this Uh, on a go-forward basis. A follow-up question to this is, knowing that so many of these small business owners, and some of which are actually healthcare providers as well, right? Mm -hmm. That these organizations have such limited capacity, they're kind of working, you know, hand to mouth, and they've got few resources to invest time into researching and understanding what their options are, and actually being thoughtful, as you suggest they should be about prioritizing primary care in a, a planned purchase. And Where would you direct them? How would you help guide them so that we can make them a little more effective in their planning and thoughtful approach from the employer perspective? I would suggest that they stay in their communities or if they're a national employer, that they pick a couple of communities and see if they can innovate in collaborative conversations with sources of primary care in their communities, that they they go back to basics and recognize that in terms of healthcare delivery, nothing happens without a doctor's order. So if I can start to think in terms of 
how my covered individuals, whatever covered individuals I'm left with after this is all over with, how my covered individuals will re-enter the healthcare system and uh, is there an opportunity to create this new kind of accountable care relationship uh, with sources of primary care in order to rebuild this? And if they have an active, if that employer has an active business coalition, business group on health, you know, whatever it's called in their particular community, I would suggest that they, you know, step forward and try to involve themselves in that organization because based upon what's been happening through the National Alliance of Purchaser Coalitions, there may well be an opportunity for them to learn from these conversations that have been happening behind the scenes. You can't rely on the same old, same old because it's just a different world out there now. Jed, thanks for that response. Appreciate that. I want to shift the conversation a little bit to another topic that you've touched on. And that's about healthcare technology with COVID-19 and what we've been seeing. You know, it's demonstrated to many that we've talked about the payment reform needs. But when we're talking about the face-to-face encounters versus the virtual encounters, another article I read of yours talks about that, the change that's happening there and providers will be more thoughtful about who actually needs to be seen face-to-face and and where is it appropriate to use telehealth, asynchronous messaging, other technologies. There's a lot of clinical communication platforms that can facilitate more effective and consumer-driven care delivery. But what about technologies focused on data capture and reporting to ensure that clinicians are able to fulfill their calling rather than being glorified clerks or subject to the measurement industrial complex that may sound good in theory but rarely drives true improvement. Right. Well, you can't manage what you don't measure, but sometimes you measure things not necessarily because they're important, but because you can. And so to your point around practice level technology, uh, which is, uh, again, one of the core elements of an advanced primary care model practice, it's all about understanding the documented needs of the patient and the cohort of patients in order to allocate and align resources and services with the true needs of the covered individual. It's important to have practice level technology that supports that effort and and does so in a way that doesn't bury the physician or his or her care team in tracking what's happening with the patient for the patient. And so uh, there are uh, technologies, uh, and again, certain electronic medical record solutions that are much, much better at supporting so-called population health, which is really understanding the needs of that covered individual. A couple of examples are Athena Health and their new marketplace collaborator, Navina, that really leverage Uh, software technology in a way that is able to cull the clinical record for data elements that drives clinical decision-making and the organization of a, a clinically valid care plan that is extremely well balanced between a chronic conditions and health status improvement initiatives. Uh, The history has been, in a fee-for-service world in particular, aimed at documenting things in order to drive revenue. And I I use this example that 
services are not necessarily offered to a patient unless there is a code for it and there is a fee for it. And that's been a regrettable reality. And the other simple truth is under national correct coding, compensation to a practice has been limited only in instances where the physician or a nurse practitioner, for example, or physician assistant was face-to-face with a patient. The beauty of a strong practice-level technology program coupled with true payment reform for primary care is it allows the care team to be redeployed in a way that addresses the so-called primary care shortage, because now you have care team members who are more suitably trained based upon the documented needs of the patient and a focus, again, on things like health literacy in order to drive better outcomes. And so practice-level technology, Daniel, is absolutely critical to a primary care practice's ability to both identify, document, and address the short and longer-term needs of a patient. And that's really where the focus should be in, in order to really ensure meaningful deliverables. Where do you see electronic health records going in the future? If you think about how they were built decades ago, based in a fee-for-service environment where they kind of serve as an electronic chassis to support collection of codes to support in documentation to support fee-for-service billing on a transactional basis. And how do you fully unleash the capabilities in digital health records as well as as an extension of the practice-level technology to, to really create a more transformative primary care model? Well, really what the focus should be is on uh, ICD-10 capture, not CPT code documentation. The more sophisticated systems will be able to call the record and actually then generate a much more comprehensive set of uh, ICD-10 codes in order to more fully report the level of care that the patient is receiving from the care team. So it's, it's less of a, an effort to support the justification of CPT codes and more of an opportunity to speak to how comprehensive the care is. Part of the control of aggregate spending is the ability of primary care to, to do what I affectionately refer to as cannibalized downstream spending the ability of primary care to provide services in the broadest possible sense and be in a position not to have to make a referral. In a fee-for-service world, there's actually real dollar value in writing prescriptions and making referrals because that was the basis for driving a higher relative value unit service reporting. In the new world that we're talking about now and that we're looking at as a definition of advanced primary care is how comprehensive that primary care practice is in the documentation and reporting of how comprehensive the care is. Well, you speak about this new world, and we know we're going to have to face it, but it's still intimidating. And just on the topic of the ICD-10 codes, I mean, I know a lot of primary care physicians were thinking like, wow, there's like 69,000 of those. Like, how am I ever going to manage that? And I saw this article yesterday on LinkedIn by uh, Dr. Christopher Chen at ChinMed. And he used the term Stockholm syndrome to cite a study that recently said about 60% of doctors believe value-based care would have a negative impact on their practice. 
So it, it's almost like you have, you know, a pretty large faction of the physician community that's out there that even though they know value-based care, patient-centered care, it's the right thing to do. It seems like they, despite that irrefutable evidence, they, they're still scared to leave FFS. You know, they, they're stuck in that fee-for-service state of mind where they're thinking about 15-minute visits that are overbooked, you know, to your point earlier. Yeah. And they're thinking, about, well, how can I add in telehealth visits and cram those in between? They know they're on the FFS hamster wheel. And even though they're unhappy with it and even though they're struggling, it seems like you have physicians out there that, are, that would rather do that than step out of their comfort zone. And again, we're, we're not talking about all, all physicians, but there clearly is a, a fear psychology in play when it comes to that resistance to, to change. And I, I think there's studies that show, come on, I mean, you, there's return on investment and there's efficiencies that you can gain. And even the quadruple aim, I mean, that's in your grasp if you can get in this race to value. Jed, what, what do you think about, what do we do about the, the laggards out there that are, that are reluctant to, to join the movement? How do we bring them along to let them fully appreciate the potential for value-based care and payment reform versus trying to cling on to the vestiges of the old fee-for-service way of doing things? Well, Eric, you just asked me a question that often gets me in trouble. I have shared with many for some time now that it's not about all primary care. It's about the correct community of primary care. I'm one of those who I have poured over paid claims data for years, dating back to while I was working for a small community hospital in upstate New York, and we had the opportunity to create something known as the Cornell Program for Healthy Living, which was a primary care-oriented effort in order to address Cornell's unacceptable trend uh, as a self-funded employer. And what we discovered in that scenario, and, and it seems to have held true time and time again, it's about a third of primary care is absolutely exceptional. About a third of primary care is okay. And about a third of primary care, frankly, needs to go do something else. So when you look at this, you want to create an environment where primary care can gravitate toward advanced primary care as opposed to uh, being caught in a situation where you've got to try to bring primary care in that lower third up to any semblance of performance. It's sad to say, but it's true, that one thing we've learned is that not all primary care is created equal. And frankly, neither are all attorneys, real estate agents, you teachers, you name the profession. And you'll find the same sort of uh, simple truth that not all are created equal. So with that being sort of the backdrop, our feeling is, my feeling is, let's really work to identify what advanced primary care, exceptional primary care looks like, acts like, and smells like, and then put that out there for folks to decide for themselves as individual doctors, is that something I want to aspire to? Is that something I want to be? Or is it beyond my reach and I'll just continue to do something else or maybe go sit down? I hate to put it that way, but otherwise you can spend a lot of time and a lot of resource trying to rehab a segment of the community who are not rehabable, if that makes sense. Oh, it does. And I think about, you know, this advanced primary care movement. I mean, if, if we truly reach that aim, Jed, and we know what it looks like, smells like, acts like, we're living it, we're seeing it, 
physician morale, you know, that quadruple aim, you know, that the, the, the reason why these physicians went to medical school, like we're achieving that. I, I just think about like, I want to be optimistic and think we can get there. And, you know, part of the reason why I got into value-based care was I, I took a, a trip to Cuba and I saw, you know, how patient-centered primary care could be delivered. And it kind of motivated me to leave fee-for-service and get into this, the work that I'm doing now. But what I, what I remember about Cuba, you know, the 80% of the doctors are primary care and 20% were specialists. And then here in the U.S., it's completely flipped. You know, if you're going into medical school and you have 200000 in debt, likely you're not going to choose to be a primary care physician. You're going to want to be a specialist. So how long do you think it's going to take before, I mean, you mentioned like we have a third of primary care physicians that are exceptional and another third are, you know, there's room for improvement. But even if you had all of the primary care physicians that were 100% where they need to be, there's still a shortage of primary care in our country. Do you think we're ever going to reach that point where we make the practice of primary care so exceptional that we can kind of flip that metric and make it 80-20 where primary care is actually truly the foundation of our country's health system? Yes, I am optimistic that ultimately primary care in this country will be positioned the way it needs to be positioned. I think there are a shrinking number of cosmic forces in opposition to this. I think our current pandemic has sort of helped us uh, see that in different ways, but I remain optimistic. And for what little I can contribute to the conversation, I'm not, I personally, I'm not ready to go sit down and I plan on continuing this campaign and, and this recent collaborative conversation between the National Alliance of Healthcare Purchaser Coalitions and the American Academy of Family Physicians, I think is a clear indication of an opportunity to move, pick up the pace, frankly, because if, if those who buy care, self-funded employers, begin to truly understand what advanced primary care looks like, I think that they will make a different buying and purchasing decision on behalf of themselves and their covered individuals in a meaningful way. And so I really am optimistic from that standpoint. Now, getting to your point about a primary care shortage, again, I'm one of those who disturbs complacency with an observation here or there that we may not have or have had the shortage we thought we did. It was just poor deployment of resources. Again, getting back to the, the notion of national correct coding around fee-for-service medicine, we were asking primary care physicians to do things that, frankly, they were, not, they were not the best person or the best individual to do something, but because nothing would be payable to the practice unless that primary care physician or that nurse practitioner or physician's assistant was directly involved in that, the practice would get nothing. So I, I really believe that care team innovation will help address the so-called shortage in primary care because we want primary care physicians to be surrounded by uh, teams of individuals who are able to uh, execute on the clinical care plan that that primary care physician has uh, authored and oversees. And so I've had the pleasure of doing some meaningful work there in terms of defining, uh, right down to Eric, writing job descriptions for team members a colleague of mine who recently passed away wrote the book on team care medicine, Peter Anderson out of uh, uh, Central Virginia. And so it really is thinking about it from a process of care perspective and innovating around that. Now, some physicians have told me to my face, look, I don't want to be anybody's medical director. I only want to be their personal physician. Fine. 
I learned a long time ago that not all physicians can delegate and uh, not all physicians can collaborate. And those are two, frankly, management skills that are necessary in order for a primary care physician to truly be the head of a care team. And if they don't have those skills, that's fine. Uh, they can do something else and not necessarily this. But those skills are necessary in order for us to scale primary care in a way that meets uh, the needs of patients individually and as cohorts. Jed, I want to circle back to something we were talking about before and tie it to this. And you're talking about skill sets that physicians need to succeed with the new evolution of primary care and where we think it can be. And that's the level of risk that they should be taking. And, and not all primary care physicians feel like they could manage risk. And, and you make a statement that people conflate managing risk and with managing care. Can you talk about what you think is the right risk level for providers or for primary care physicians and, and your perspective on risk as you, you talk about the observations you've made? And, and I think this is a pretty astute observation as well. Yeah, and, and my position is that we are all at risk in some form or fashion, but it doesn't necessarily equate to financial risk. So if you understand the physician's psyche, if you will, and it's not that each individual physician is exactly the same, but one of the things that physicians really don't want to do is fail. They don't want to fail in the relationship they have with patients. They don't want anything in, in that scenario to go wrong. And I think what we have failed to do, uh, frankly, is understand that from the standpoint of what outcomes are we looking for. And so we have defaulted to uh, financial risk as the only way to you know, get their attention and ensure their cooperation. And you know, I saw that years ago with the onset of IPA HMOs, and what primary care learned to do well in those instances is what I affectionately refer to as specialty care dump out. Many of these physicians were, you know, they were $9.50 per member per month for a pretty broad range of services. And so what they learned how to do was address the real simple things in that financial reality and simply dump everything out to a specialist. And so it's, it's not, again, I, I think it is their sincere interest in succeeding in their ability to care for the needs of a covered individual that we need to zero in on and think in terms of feedback loops that help them understand exactly how they're doing in the context of that, then creating these at-risk financial arrangements that may tend to lead rather to some perverse behaviors. Physicians are not insurance companies and insurance companies are not clinicians. The sooner we really recognize that there is a different set of motivations or enlightened self-interest held by physicians that we can work with, the better off we'll be. Jed, I'd like to ask you also about the patient-centered medical home model and how this plays into all that. It's been about 15 years since the patient-centered primary care collaborative was formed to advance PCMH. And I'm a big advocate of this movement. I've led several PCMH transformations myself and really believe in the model. But it seems like 
PCMHs have only had limited success at a national level. Mm-hmm. And we've made great strides in defining what true patient-centered care looks like for individual patients in that model. But it seems like FFS has really held back that movement for the medical home and and I also think that just the recognition maybe is a little cost prohibitive and there hasn't been incentives by payers and there's a multitude of things that have happened to hold it back. So now that we're, we're 15 years, I guess, past PCC really looking at creating the movement and now we're at this inflection point where we're going to look at transforming the payment model and the financing for primary care. Do you think that's going to be the catalyst to change the current trajectory of the PCMH movement? When will it finally reach critical mass? Yes. When it reaches critical mass, I've never been good at, at guesstimating crowd size or that. But what I do see is a simple recognition among many that while PCMH laid a nice foundation for a different conversation around primary care, it didn't genuinely accomplish what folks had hoped because the money never followed. And that primary care was, in, in some instances, goaded into earning recognition, NCQA being the father of it all, but it didn't necessarily translate into meaningful additional dollars. Now, that being said, I had the same opportunity, Eric, as as you've alluded to, in support of our Cornell program for healthy living. We took 15 practices through the recognition process, innovated in several ways. But before I even started, I asked key primary care practices to take two years worth of historical billings in a fee-for-service world and ask them to model around patient-centered care and lo and behold, help them understand that if they truly practice patient-centered care, they would generate an additional $450 to $500 per patient per year in incremental revenue. And so even in a fee-for-service world with all the limitations of national correct coding, true patient-centered care can generate, because it strengthens the relationship of patients, which helps to identify a broader set of needs that patients have from primary care. And again, in the context of cannibalizing downstream spending and downstream care. So it's not more money, if you will, in terms of aggregate spending, but it is incremental revenue for primary care. But that takes work. That's where primary care has to step forward and say, I'm the owner of my own future and well-being. But not all primary care was in a position to do that. And certainly a meaningful number of primary care practices were led to believe that if they simply did this, that more money would be waiting for them on the other end. And that didn't happen. But I'm one of those who believes that the PCMH conversation did and continues to establish a nice foundation for the continuing evolution of primary care. Because even though we're talking about advanced primary care today, in 2025, we're going to be talking about a different kind of primary care then. So advanced primary care may be great to talk about now, but we're going to be talking about something that has evolved in 2025. Well, Jed, I I look forward to having that conversation with you in 2025. There is an important movement underway. Patient-centered care is, is of paramount importance and advanced primary care and the financing and delivery of care. It seems like that needs to be the undergirding, you know, to make that happen. 
And uh, here at the ACLC, we like to think we also have a part to play in the value-based care movement. We definitely want to support your efforts and as a leader in primary care transformation and finance. What can we do to help support your efforts and really advance this agenda, this important discussion that we're having right now? Well, Eric, learning collaboratives like yours are absolutely critical in terms of creating a catalog, if you will, of resources that a primary care can look to for what does my practice technology look like or need to look like? What sort of care team design should I have based upon my temperament as a physician? What can I do to either develop or strengthen my skills around delegation and collaboration? So learning collaboratives like yours are just absolutely critical to this because folks, while they might be able to figure this out on their own, frankly, they shouldn't figure this out on their own because the dangers of groupthink in this scenario, it's important to avoid that. It's important to avoid telling yourself something you already know. It's important instead to see if you're on the right track. And so the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative, I believe, is the kind of organization that absolutely strengthens the ability to design a best-in-class primary care capability that is able to, frankly, to negotiate the correct compensation arrangement and then subsequently deliver the goods. Well, we have a lot of work to do together, Jed, to deliver those goods. And I am hopeful we'll have that that conversation in 2025 and we'll still be looking forward, but we'll have accomplished a great deal between now and then. Dr. Jed Constance, thank you so much for uh, just enlightening us today and joining us in this race to value. Absolutely, Eric. My pleasure. And, and Daniel, I appreciate your uh, time as well. Thanks, Jed. It's been a pleasure.